Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. We Canadians can be a bit funny about our history. We have a tendency to downplay certain aspects, and in turn, we tend to think of our own history as boring, less exciting than most countries. I've actually had trouble getting guests to select topics about Canada, despite interest from international listeners. But that reputation is wrong, and one of the best examples of this is the colony of New France, which at its largest covered a massive swath of North America, from Hudson's Bay to the Gulf of Mexico. New France is anything but boring. So with this in mind, let's begin. Here on HI 101 with Gary Hallman. Hello. How's it going, Gary? It's going good, man. It's going good. That's good. And uh, today we're going to talk about the colony of New France. Yes. So excited. I'm also very excited to talk about. Do you want to tell people how this topic kind of came up for us? Oh, us the yeah. idea. So for those of you who haven't been watching... Lots of Canadian media recently. We are having our 150th anniversary this year as a nation. Yep. Which is exciting. Mm -hmm. So in their benevolent wisdom, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation decided to run a basically mini-series called The Story of Us. It's a 10-parter. Wow, is it really 10 parts? I think it's going to be 10 parts. I've only watched the first three parts, and I am I think I'm going to have to stop there. I, I watched one, and I have not brought myself to watch another one. Guys, it's it's kind of bad. It's really bad. Like, please don't watch that and get some sort of sense of actual Canadian history. It's not good. It, it's it's not good, but but further to that, I mean... So, I mean, it's, it's our public corporation, right? So, I mean, you think they'd be particularly leaning on the more sensitive side of things... So my first impression watching this when first off the bat, they basically skip about, you know, 1500 years of First Nations history in the span of about 15 minutes. Yep. And then launch straight into it's just it's every trope you could possibly think of about Canada. Like all of the traders are dirty French people. Yeah. And all of the like Englishmen are like. Well groomed and well mannered, they're, they're and wealthy all and attractive. Yeah, so it's it's basically fitting into, like, needless to say, this caused a little bit of a stir in <laughs> Quebec and all sorts of other parts of Canada. Oh yeah, I I, I doubt there were very many uh, regions that were immune to this. It, it ticks all the boxes, and apparently, since the last time we talked, I was reading a little bit more about this, and yeah. I guess the the inside sources of this were saying like. Oh, you think that was bad? It could have been so much worse. Yeah. Apparently, they just stopped like 
this is this is the revised version because the oh, original man. version was so offensive they had to like beg them to go back and retape specific parts of it. That's terrifying. Right. So to to get a little bit more general again to to kind of make it a little more accessible for everybody who's not keeping up on what the CBC's been up to. You know, there's there's this period of history that people our age going through school, we got well, we we went through it in grade 7. That's in in Ontario, uh the province that we live in. That's when you talk about uh this period of history. Specifically, it's it's uh the period known as uh, New France, when France made a very solid effort at colonizing North America. And we kind of talk about it when we're all 12 and 13 and, and don't pay a lot of attention. And it's kind of been presented poorly. And, you know, I've, I've gone back actually for this episode to see like, hey, what is the Ontario curriculum teaching them now? And it has been updated and revised a little bit. Oh, well, I should certainly hope so. I mean, when we were in there, I remember my grade seven teaching of this was that we didn't have enough textbooks to go around. So the well, teacher would basically write out the textbook and uh, we would have to copy it into our notebook. And that was our lesson on, I mean, on I, the history of New France. I don't I don't think that's the I don't think that's the province of Ontario's fault directly. But no, I get, absolutely I get what not. You're saying. But I mean, like it just goes to show like. Uh, you know, history, history kind of wasn't as seen as, as important, a central piece when we were, yeah. you know. Yeah, I, I think younger. social sciences in general has seen some of that. I mean, we had the shield of the arts and, and that's yeah. more or less eroded now. So yay education. But I did want to talk about, because like everyone, everyone that's gone through that Canadian uh, school system has like at least a little bit of contact with New France. I wanted to talk about a couple of the things that kind of looking back and, and doing this research, I found really problematic about the way it was presented to us. So just like in broad general terms. So, you know, the, the overall story here is while uh, Spain was busy conquering in uh, in the Gulf of Mexico and getting all their gold and silver, and Britain was kind of making a go of it on the Atlantic coast, France was exploring and settling in, uh, in basically what is now Canada or the northern United States. And that territory ended up getting really, really big. Um, and uh, before finally, uh, in, in kind of a conclusive battle, they were defeated by the British and, and the whole thing was ceded to Great Britain. When we talk about it in school, though, there's a few things that I've, uh, th there's a few things that they get very, very wrong. And you kind of understand why being a, a school curriculum, but still. The first one I noticed was it really overstates the importance of New France to the world in general. It oh, makes it seem like absolutely. it's, it makes it seem like it's this really, really, really big deal. I would not be surprised if anyone outside of Canada uh, had never heard of New France before, possibly including actual France. There's uh, there's a tendency to really understate the relationship between New France and Europe. It makes it seem like it's this thing that was started in Canada and was extremely independent from the get-go and was always on this course towards becoming an independent nation, which is not true at all. It was heavily dependent on Europe and really there entirely to drive you know economic growth in France. So would at this time would this have been like like a more well known thing in France as like a, a good place to find a job or like what was, um, you know the, the the thing with mercantilism which is kind of what we're talking about here, is that 
you could definitely get a job there, but there was no question about how safe that job was or how rich it would make you or, you know, how, how much it would actually help you in any way in France. And so in a lot of ways, coming to the new world to get a job was uh, an opportunity at a fresh start, which is obviously attractive to some people. But the thing about a fresh start is that means you're abandoning everything you've ever had in France, which, you know, you don't do if you have uh, a lot of money or a a wealthy family, like a a family in in good standing or something like that. You might fund voyages to the new world if you were wealthy and try and make some money that way but you weren't the one going but over there wasn't there. a lot of like gentry moving over at this time or? not in the least okay um no the the thing about the thing about colonies at this point in time is no one's putting a colony down and going i can't wait until in a couple hundred years this grows up into a yeah exactly you know it's its own independent little nation it's going to be it's going to be so rewarding you know this is what every country dreams of um, no, that's that's not the case at all. This is a this is a wow. This has a lot of natural resources. Let's exploit it. Let's like get as much money as we can out of this place. This is great, and that's all they have in mind. And that's no different in any other uh, European uh, contact with the New World at this point in time. So, um, what else? Uh, I find our education really, 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 really downplays uh, the role of First Nations in this period of history in New France. As is tradition. As is tradition, and and it's 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 really really disappointing. But I, I think even when we were going through, there had been significant changes in how much that was being included in the history curriculum, and even that I found, you know, going back now, like severely lacking. And I, I really hope that's one of the things they're very like like really really updating now, um, but not as much as I might like to see. Yeah, like I feel like growing up, they really didn't do a good job explaining that these were really pretty much like sophisticated sovereign nations Mm -hmm. that were pre-existing as opposed to like tribes of roaming people. It makes them seem far less socially complex than what they probably actually were at the time. Yeah. And and that brings me to my next point, which is that it falls prey to a number of kind of classic mistaken assumptions about First Nations people. There's two main tropes that their role in history tends to fall into. One is that of a vicious savage, which, you know, there's there's no reasoning with them. They'll attack without warning and without cause um, that there's, you know, uh, that Europeans tried to get along with them. And there's just no getting along with First Nations people, which mm-hmm. obviously is completely ludicrous. And then there's the other extreme, which is the trope of the, the noble savage, mm-hmm. which is this idea that there's these people there that are untouched by the evils of modern society. And because they haven't put monarchies in place or because they haven't learned to work with metals and things like that, that they are somehow closer to nature and somehow more innocent and therefore require uh, protection or don't deserve as much of a full role in things like decision-making and negotiations. Yeah, it seems like a very paternalistic view of, of I, like, an entire group of people. Well, absolutely. And, I mean, this is this is a... It's almost a necessity of colonialism, right? Yeah. Is is this, this uh, viewpoint that, oh, these people aren't... They aren't as advanced as us yet, and it's our duty to keep them safe. I mean... It's basically at, what the entire British Empire was built on. Well, it, you know, Richard Kipling with the white man's burden and all yeah. of that, which... I was horrified when I first learned was not satirical. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 you kind of have to play some head games with yourself to convince yourself that 
what you're doing as a, as a colonial master is okay. And that's absolutely at play with some of the things that we're going to talk about uh, in terms of First Nations peoples. And in reality, they're going to be quite advanced, the people that we're talking about. I mean, there's certain, there's certain uh, metrics where they are falling short of where uh, Europe is, but stuff like that is so subjective that it's not really worth comparing, right? Mm-hmm. For example, metalwork was almost completely unknown in the New World. Uh, or, or in, in the North American portion of the New World, um, when you got down towards the the Maya and the Aztec, yeah, there was some some metalwork, and uh, sure, some of these people were working with uh, copper, but they weren't like forging it, like they weren't doing proper... using it for like tools and. There were some tools, but copper is really soft. It's not great for it. You yeah. might as well use flint. I mean, a lot of that just has to do with the availability of metal and just wasn't really around and they got around they got along fine without it like that's not really a thing that shows that they're doing poorly as you know at life at at civilization it's just a fact that that exists and yeah it's going to be a problem for them when firearms are introduced for example but you know it 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 doesn't make them inferior on any other it seems like they adapted pretty quick too oh absolutely Absolutely. The other thing is, no, they don't tend to have large uh, cities, but we're going to be talking about groups who tend to uh, use agricultural practices that involve only farming an area of land for a couple of years and then moving along, or most of their uh, subsistence is coming from uh, hunting and gathering, and they only farm for part of the year to kind of cover off the winter, things like that. You know, they they knew what they were doing. They were doing just fine. Uh, that doesn't make them... In, in fact, in a lot of ways, it put them uh, miles ahead of the Europeans, as we're going to see uh, when, when we get to them. But the last thing that I noticed was that the, the curriculum tries really hard to polish a fundamentally unpolished period, per, period in history. Yeah. It is brutal. Absolutely. It is uncivilized, with the Europeans kind of being the most uncivilized of them all. And some terrible, terrible stuff is going to happen here. And there's part of me that goes, I get why somebody went, 12-year-olds shouldn't know about this. Then there's another part of me that's going, are you kidding me? Tell some 12-year-olds about this stuff and they will be listening for sure. Oh, yeah. The the way they always make it seem when you're a kid is like, and then the winter came and there was struggle. Yeah. And when when, when, really it's like, then the winter came and like a whole bunch of people died in a really terrible way. Yeah. So let's get going on the early exploration because we're going to just kind of bang through some names real quick that, you know, they did some firsts and that's about it, but we should know about them anyway. Specifically, 1497, John Cabot uh, is the first European maybe to uh, land on like mainland North America since the Vikings, maybe. There's a good chance that there were some Basque fishermen that had been fishing off the coast of Newfoundland for decades before this, but... You know, if you find a really good fishing spot, you don't always tell about it, especially yeah. if your livelihood depends on it. So, um, yeah, there's there's evidence that Basque fishermen have been fishing there since the 1450s or so. Hmm. Um, anyways, this shows that like really quickly after Columbus comes back with word that lots more explorers start going over. It's one thing to sail out into the unknown. It's another thing to go. There's a big target over that way. Let's check it out. Mm-hmm. So uh, already this short amount of time after Columbus who we're not going to talk about today. <laughs> Different story altogether. It, I, I don't know if you listen to this show regularly, Gary. I've got a thing with, with Columbus. Who doesn't have a thing with Columbus these days? He's been talked to death. He's been talked to death. 
yeah, it, it wasn't it wasn't long before there were plenty of other players in the game. Is is my point here? John Cabot was actually uh, an Italian, uh, Giovanni Cavotto, who was uh, who was contracted by Henry the Seventh. This is this is Henry the Eighth's he father. Not a white English guy. Yeah. Mind this blown. Is, this is Henry the Eighth's father, though. Just to give you an idea of when oh, in history really? we're talking okay. about. Like it's it's crazy. Like that's the other thing about talking about New France in a vacuum. You don't get that context of like, hey, where are we in history? Because it's kind of detached a little bit. There's What's, a long period of time where like stuff's going on, and then like the entire history of modern Europe is mm-hmm. happening in the background. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm going to try and reference that once in a while just to give us our bearings. Cabot didn't really do much more than make a claim and, you know, make a map. And that's about it. He was, we're not even a hundred percent sure where he landed. There's a few different sites that are contending for like most likely. Um, so that's, that's the first guy though, that was, uh, starting to map the mouth of the St. Lawrence river, for example. But really the focus of exploration in this period is on the Gulf of Mexico. You know, the Spanish have found that the Aztecs are there. The Aztecs have gold. This seems a lot more obvious as like a really good place to concentrate efforts mm-hmm. than the wilds of, of Eastern Canada. So you don't get a lot of action for a few decades in more of the northern areas of, of New France. But Jacques Cartier does come back in 1534 and he's going to actually land on Gaspé Peninsula, plant a, a cross, uh, claim the area for King Francis I of France. And that's technically where New France really starts. That's the first French claim. So so at this point, are the French really like have the Spanish kind of dominated the rest, everything south at this point? Because yeah. just, just thinking logically about it now. Yeah. Climate wise, it would sure would make a lot more sense for these guys to be, you know, hitting the middle of the new world as opposed to right this northern part, which is essentially a big rock with trees. Yeah, I mean, the, the one thing to consider here is the Spanish like naval dominance at this point in time. Okay, their shipbuilding so is there's like a reason why they're oh yeah, their okay. ships are way better than anybody else's. Okay, they have that area locked down. The other thing to keep in mind is that the geography of Europe and the geography of the New World don't really make that much sense unless you have sort of a more modern understanding of where some of the things like climate come from. Specifically, I would point out that Quebec City, which we're going to be spending most of our time talking about, is at it's it's within a degree of latitude of Venice. So there's no reason when they're landing like in Newfoundland that they aren't expecting a climate more like, you know, central to northern France. Wow. So this is why you get all these accounts of like, the winter is crazy here. Like, it's not... Like, they, they don't have any sort of prior, like, uh, experience to give them an idea of what Canadian winters are like. And as far as they're concerned, they haven't gone really that for much further north. And the winter is completely different than what they thought it was going to be. And it takes them completely by surprise. So, for the French to be exploring further north isn't crazy, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it, there's there's no reason it shouldn't be a completely viable place for a colony. It's just that they get hit with some harsh realities in terms of uh, Seems weather. Logical. Yeah. The French tried further south. 1564, they established Fort Carolyn near modern Jacksonville, Florida. But the French just destroyed the fort almost immediately uh, upon its founding. So, like, they couldn't really get in that area. Sorry, the French destroyed it? 
sorry, the Spanish destroyed oh, okay. the French yeah. uh, uh, fort. Um, I, I should mention about Cartier before we move on. Uh, he's the one that named Canada. Uh, he met with um, the native people there and, and through some very complicated translations, uh, asked them basically, oh, what, what's the name of this place? And was pointing at like a village. And the St. Lawrence Iroquois word for village is Canada, which he took it to mean the, the entire country. And here we are 500 years later. This has been a Canadian heritage moment. I love heritage minutes, okay? By Adam Blesky. They're the best. Yeah, if you, if you don't know what we're talking about, go on YouTube, look up Canada Heritage Minute, pick anyone you want. There's a really good one on basketball. There's a really oh. good one on basketball. Look that one up. You'll There's find another out. great parody called the Shawanigan Handshake. That's another <laughs> great Canadian heritage moment. I'm so glad we're talking about this because none of my guests ever want to talk about Canada. They find it boring. They don't get to talk about the good stuff on this show. It's just cool. The history's cool. Yeah, it's just we, we do our best not to talk about how great it is. It is cool. Anyways... A lot of the contact for the rest of the 16th century, basically, is going to be very like low-level commercial contact. You're talking about fishermen that are you know fishing off the the Grand Bank. Cartier fa- famously remarked that to fish cod off of Newfoundland, you didn't need a net; you could just scoop them up with a basket off the side of the ship. They were incredibly plentiful. And fish was a big deal in France because France is a Catholic nation at this point in time. And there is a decree from the Pope saying that you cannot eat meat on Fridays. They need something to eat on Fridays. Fish is going to have to be it. Cod are plentiful. They're easy to catch. They're big enough that it's worth it. Like they're, they're generally like a foot oh, or longer. If you've ever seen a fully grown cod before, it's massive. Yep. And they taste pretty good. Oh yeah. Cod's amazing. But yeah, I mean, some fish that you get are kind of kind of rank. God, yeah. nice and mild. Uh, they dry out easily. They're easy to transport. It's a, it's a great solution. I do also want to mention, because I, I, I'll maybe forget to mention this later, but I really like it. Beaver in the New World were classified by the Pope for the French as a fish. Really? Because they swam in the water and because <laughs> it was really hard to find any, any fish when you were traveling like well inland on these voyages to get beaver pelts. So they said, yeah, beaver's basically a fish, and now you can eat them on Fridays. I wonder if he had actually ever seen a beaver while classifying this. I have no idea. I kind of think no. These I'm, things I'm happen sure once they must in a have while. Been like, what the hell is a beaver? Yeah, absolutely. Well, no, I mean, there are European beavers. Oh, that's true. So anyway, I don't know how this all went down. I just love the fact that, yeah, Catholics consider North American beavers to be fish, apparently. Hmm. Anyways. So yeah, the, the, these cod fishermen were raking in profits. The beaver that we just met, mentioned, though, are, are the big one. Beaver pelt hats are all the rage in Europe at this point in time. God, like, I love that. Any, any like 16th, 17th century hat that you can think of, like the tricorn hats or like any, any hats, they're probably made out of beaver pelts. Really? And they were so popular that European beavers were actually on the decline. Like it was getting harder and harder to get pelts from Northern Europe and kind of like the, the Caucasus Mountains area of, of uh, Russia. Yeah, they were, they were being hunted out of existence. And then you sail to the New World and here's these beavers just everywhere. Everywhere, yeah. yeah. And so day. as soon as these fishermen realized this, they started bringing pelts back with them. And they were really good quality pelts. 
And when people started figuring out where the pelts were coming from, then, you know, people with more money started investing in better infrastructure. And this fur trade starts up bringing pelts from the New World and uh, taking them back to France to be made into hats and sold. Later on in New France's uh, history, you'll get uh, timber is a really big one for fish, uh, for shipbuilding and something called potash, which is basically they burn all the trees that couldn't be used for shipbuilding. And the, the, the ash was used as fertilizer. Okay. Yeah. It just helps fertilize the incredibly depleted fields of Europe. Hmm. So, yeah. All of this happened like undocumented though, right? Because it's like uneducated, probably illiterate fishermen that are doing all of this work. And so a lot of this is sort of presented as this like big void in New France's history of like, we're not entirely sure what went on, but like slowly, we, no, no, no. Hardworking people figured this out step by step. They just didn't write it down. They didn't have the means. Mainly they were trading with uh, Algonquian tribes. And when we're talking about like general groups of tribes, it's actually classified more under like language family than anything else. It's really important to understand that these are a lot of very distinct, very separate tribes. A lot of them, even though they were from the same language family, probably hated each other, probably went to war with each other all the time. Um, mainly they would have been trading with the Beotuk Indians, uh, the, the Mi'kmaq, to some extent the Inu, which aren't the same as Inuit, by the way. A lot of people make that mistake. But the Algonquian tribes also make up, you know, the Cree, which are currently uh, the biggest tribe in, in Canada. And there are a lot of Cree in the United States as well. And these are all very, very different people. And they live their lives very differently, depending geographically where they are. I mean, you know, the Cree extended out onto the plains. They're the ones hunting buffalo. While the Beotuk uh, subsisted almost entirely on cod fisheries. Like, that's a very different life. They just happen to be in the same language family. And so they all get lumped together. So at this point, they probably wouldn't have had any contact with like more subarctic tribes or. Well, these would be considered subarctic. Okay. Like the Algonquian are very much subarctic. Um, so they would have had from what I, from what I recall, like the first initial meetings of Europeans and the Inuit were so traumatic and violent that they basically just like, that was a no-go zone for a long time. Well, the the Inuit basically wiped the Europeans out of Greenland. Yeah, the 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 Viking settlers in Greenland got got whooped by the Inuit and had to leave, which says a little bit about how how fierce the Inuit were. So, you know, that's something to keep in mind. Anyways, back to New France, 1604, the first settlement, like permanent settlement, was created on the Bay of Fundy in uh, in what's now Nova Scotia. That settlement itself moved around a couple of times, was destroyed, set up somewhere else. But, you know, we're talking 1604. Virginia, which we talk about as being like really early settlement, 1607. So okay. we're earlier in the French than than uh, some of the more famous ones down on what would become the 13 colonies. So just thought I'd throw that out there. <laughs> this, uh, this settlement on the Bay of Fundy was uh, first named Arcadia, which is greek and it's this idea of these this sort of safe haven these green fields kind of thing and that was eventually the r was dropped and it became known as acadia and then this guy named samuel de champlain comes along and champlain basically i, I mean if you're going to pick anyone as a founder of canada this is the guy this is the guy right here he founded the actual city of quebec in 1608 on an expedition uh funded by henry the fourth of france and Really, it's there as sort of an official capacity uh, outpost for these fur traders that are trying to get 
closer and closer to the source of these pelts because all of this time, you know, these fishermen are trading for pelts, but they're not hunting the beaver themselves. They're trading mainly uh, household goods with these Beotuk or Mi'kmaq or uh, Inu for beaver pelts that they're bringing them. So things like uh, axe heads are incredibly uh, valuable or or metal knives or even cooking pots are, are very well prized. And these First Nations people would trade a lot of pelts for like a good cooking pot. Now, was it Champlain or Cartier who had the the flub with the the false diamonds? I always found that a, a funny tidbit. I can't remember. But do you remember that? I think one of them apparently was enthralled with the fact that there was just like diamonds everywhere in, in this like sediment rock. No, I've and never so they, run into they, this one. They brought back... Um, Is it quartz? Yeah, it ended up being quartz and it like destroyed their career later later on in their life because they it just became this like running joke back in France and to the point where I it was Cartier because they ended up calling it a Cartier diamond. I was going to say it has to be Cartier. Champlain did just fine for himself. Oh, so. yeah. Yeah, it, it must have been. It must have been Cartier. Anyways. You know, colonization was like really slow, really difficult because it wasn't about like setting up like a place to live. It was about bringing people here to trade furs. That's what he's here for. And by 1630, so over 20 years into the settlement process, he has just over 100 people. By 1640, the census rang in at 355. So at this point, like there really is no long term plan or desire to like permanently settle like there's no cattle call for people or are is are they just like really trying to get as many people over there as they can they're just trying to get as many people there to get as many pelts back as they possibly can yeah so they're not really worried about like infrastructure and housing and stuff like that at that point it's just only in so far as it supports the uh, the, the fur traders yeah. um do you speak french gary no no okay um, I'm gonna I'm gonna use a little bit of French here and there because it makes a little yeah, bit of sense. It's all good. Um, but I, I don't expect most of the listeners to uh, an entirely English popular uh, English speaking podcast to know it. So I'll be explaining myself as we go. Um, but here's our first French term, uh, les coureurs de bois. Do you remember this one? Oh my gosh, the runners of the woods. Ah uh, yes, the runners of the woods. <laughs> Champlain decided that it was incredibly, incredibly important to work with the local native people because he realized that when he got there, they were so unequipped to live in this land. And he had people, I mean, the the people that he was bringing with him were not above kind of going to these local people and just kind of hashing things out, learning the language, figuring out how to live like them because they didn't have any hangups about, you know, the proper French way to live or anything like that. Most of these people are probably criminals, to be perfectly honest with you. And it it seems to me like, you know, a lot of these trips over would kind of be a one-way ticket. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. And so he, I mean, even things as far as the, the, the local First Nations people teaching Champlain and his men that they need to make spruce needle tea over the winter because you can get vitamin C from spruce needle tea and that's how you don't get scurvy and die when there's no fresh fruits and vegetables over the winter Mm -hmm. and they were like wow like I don't get these people but they know what they're up to so let's let's try and work with them um 
this compared to uh you know some of the relations that you know the the virginians would have with the the powhatan tribes around where they had settled which were uh significantly less amicable um and you're gonna see that sort of general trend uh at least in in terms of relationships with first nations people where the french are much more willing to work with them than the english in in a lot of cases that's not Mm -hmm. every single time but you know as as a as a theme certainly so Champlain would send these coureurs de bois to live among the, the First Nations people, learn their language, learn how to survive, and set up like personal relationships uh, that would allow them to better source furs. And this is the equivalent of going out as a sales rep and buying somebody a steak dinner, right? Yeah. It's not just about the business, it's also about the, the personal relationships here. And it worked fairly well. Like, I mean, the people around Quebec City, they, they liked... They liked the French settlers fairly well. They gave them really high quality stuff. They paid for the the, the pelts when they brought the pelts. Um, they did their best to kind of trade as equals, and that's really all you need to get along with somebody, at least at first. It's not that hard. Yeah, you know, as opposed to this whole bloodthirsty savage type trope, the First Nations people were all for trading peacefully. They it it just benefited everybody here. The whole Coureur de Bois thing gets a little bit romanticized, I think it'd be fair to say. Yeah, I can see how that can be a pretty easy trope to form. I mean, like, it's, you it's know... It's the romance of this, this you know, strong, oh, it's, it's, rugged Frenchman you know, striking out. Early days of dancing, dancing dances with wolves, right? <laughs> striking out into the interior, learning all he can from the First Nations, you know... Witnessing vistas that no European has ever seen before. Do you remember uh, hearing about a coureur named uh, Etienne Brulé? No. I actually remember this guy from grade set. Like, I remember him being brought up as, like, the quintessential coureur. Etienne Brulé came over. He was, like, 18 kind of thing, right? I don't know what he got up to at home. You don't come over at 18 if you've been... (laughs) Yeah, if you've been uh, leading a, a wholesome life. Not so much, but... He went out and he, he spent a full five years integrating with the local uh, Algonquian tribes. Uh, it, I, I think, it, sorry, it was with the, the actual Algonquin tribe, which is what the language family is going to be named after. In this time, striking out from Quebec City, he, it, sorry, he, he, learned, he learned the language. Um, uh, Champlain was very impressed with this, asked him to go back and, and continue living with them and working with them. Um, and over, over the next decade and a half or so, uh, he, he spent his time traveling throughout North America. He was most likely the first European to ever see the Great Lakes. He saw four out of five of the Great Lakes. Keep in mind how far it is from the That's Great Lakes. That's a long way. He got as far down as the Chesapeake Bay at one point. Holy crap. Yeah, he was all over the place. And he's kind of held up as this like, oh, he integrated with the First Nations. Oh, he saw all these first things. Let me tell you what happened to Etienne Brulé. Um, he was embedded with the Wendat people, which, uh, we tend to call Huron. Yeah. Um, here's the other thing about First Nations in Canada, well, in, in North America as, uh, in general. Um, we tend to do a really bad job of naming them. It's kind of named for geography more than what they would call themselves. Uh, it's actually backwards. A lot oh, of times really? geography is named after our bad names of these tribes. Okay. Well, there you um, go. some of the, some of the names that we know are clearly French names. Like, Iroquois is clearly a French word. Yeah. Um, other times, what you get is you talk to one First Nations group and you say, hey, those people that live across that way, 
what are they called? And they're like, oh, our name for them is this. And like, what you don't know is that you just got told the one that name for like butthead. And you're like, oh yeah, okay, sounds good. Like write it down in the logs. Today I heard of the butthead people. Like, and that's what they end up getting called. And sometimes, and, and things are going to get really bloody with, with sort of uh, like various wars that are coming up. Sometimes these people are destroyed before Europeans even have a chance to ask them what they call themselves. And these bad names just get stuck. Or sometimes they do learn the right names and the bad names still just get stuck. Well, that's the tricky part about even trading peacefully, becoming friends with one group of people, you know, mm -hmm. almost necessitates that you are unfriendly with another, another different group of people. Yeah. Um, sometimes. And, and we'll get to that very, very shortly. <laughs> Believe me. But, Brule, before we finish up with him. Yes. He was embedded with uh, the Wendat. Um, he had learned their language. Um, the Wendat were actually uh, uh, an Iroquois people, not uh, 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 an Algonquian people in terms of their language group. Um, but they were they were enemies with the with the actual what we would yeah. call the Iroquois uh, nation uh, or or uh, federation. It's definitely one of the more popularized feuds. Yeah. Um, before he died, Brule taught the Jesuit. Um, uh, missionaries how to speak Wendat. So when you hear about um, Jean de Brebeuf and all these other um, French Jesuits that like, you know, went went among the Hurons, like spreading the word, like he's the one that taught them how to speak Huron to reach out to these people, um, you know, in, in times where he had like come back to like touch base with camp. But he was embedded with the Wendat and there was a raid by the Seneca who are one of the one of the five nations, one of the Iroquois nations. And the, the Wendat thought that Brule had been killed, but he had just been wounded. And he managed to actually get it, like make his way back to uh, the Wendat. Um, however, the Wendat believed that he had been let go by the Seneca. They didn't trust him anymore. And this one tribe of Wendat, the bear tribe, decided that he was no longer worth trusting. They stabbed him to death and they ate him. Shoot. They don't tell you that part in grade seven. No. That's how one of the most famous coureurs de bois ever met that his end. An unsavory and untimely death. Yeah. So that's the kind of thing that you are up against as a coureur de bois. It is, it is the most frontier frontier out there. Because part of it is that, you know, th this terrain is unfamiliar. But also, you're stepping into an incredibly complex cultural and political si uh, situation that you do not understand. And you are not even close to being ready to understand yet. Um, the, the, the culture, the, the uh, values, um, even, the, even the punishments and the crimes don't necessarily make automatic sense to you. And you're not always necessarily sure what's going to be a problem and what's going to be fine. It's, it's tough. Now, Champlain himself was a little bit more savvy than this. He at least knew enough to figure out like the big players as quickly as possible. One of the, uh, one of the first things that he did after founding Quebec was to talk to the people that were, you know, in, in the general region. And he learned, uh, and, and I mean, mainly you're talking about various um, uh, Algonquian tribes the Odawa, the, the, Algonquian, the Algonquin themselves, people like that. He learned about the Haudenosaunee, which are the, the what we call Iroquois. Uh, the, the actual proper name is Haudenosaunee. And we can just call them Five Nations. That's fine. That's also an acceptable name. I'm going to stick with that one. I don't, 
like it's tricky right but yeah anyways we'll go with five nations he found out that they were kind of the main players south of where they were located and so he went uh with a raiding party down to lake champlain uh in 1609 to meet with a number of Haudenosaunee leaders and like walking up to the biggest guy in the prison yard on your first day and socking him in the face he went down there with this war party and before even really getting into talks he shot three of their chieftains uh two of them were at the same time with the same bullet these people had never seen firearms before it kind of gave the five nations an idea of who they were dealing with in the french and it did a pretty good job of, of letting them know, hey, don't mess with them. But it also kind of made the French an enemy forever. Yeah, I was going to say, that is a risky negotiating tactic. It really is. But what he's doing is he's looking at the people who are around Quebec, um, including the Wendat and all these smaller people, and going, okay, well, we know they're peaceful. We know they're trading with us. We know that they're supporting us. These, these Haudenosaunee, we don't understand who they are. And from what we've heard... They carry a big stick. We don't want to get tied up in that. And we don't want to get tied up in like intertribal uh, warfare. So we are going to firmly align ourselves with our Algonquian allies. So that's what he did. He knew what he was doing. And to be fair, the, the Five Nations were raiding like a lot. They were expanding at this point in time. They had not... like the, they, they were made up of... of Five tribes, as the, the name obviously suggests. It's the, the Mohawk were the, the biggest one, but there's also the Onondaga, Oneida, uh, Cayuga, Seneca. And they had allied in order to gain political and military power. Like, that's what they're there for. Yeah. And they were wielding that. So, you know, Champlain was looking to uh, counteract that to some extent. I think partly because he wasn't sure that he could take them. Really? Even with guns with 355 people oh yeah true probably most of them not really have fighting quality no or or most of them away from quebec yeah you know because they're off running through the woods and sourcing furs and all of getting that getting eaten getting eaten uh-oh the english co- uh, colonies had way bigger populations they were uh they were after cash crops that were more farming based i.e tobacco was the mm-hmm. big one and they were looking to put people down like settle down there um part of that is sort of the whole um uh you know religious migrant thing that's going on in England at this point yeah yeah uh they need a place to live but you know they're they're growing at a much faster pace france or new france not so much however the amount of wealth that was being funneled back finally caught the attention of uh one cardinal richelieu the bad guy from the three musketeers yes he was a real guy uh, the real Richelieu is a really interesting guy. Um, a lot less, like, sinister. evil. Yeah, a lot less sinister than than the book-slash-movies might have you believe. Um, but definitely shrewd. And he went, this looks like an opportunity to make some money. And he formed Le Compagnie de Saint-Associe, which is the, the company of 100 uh, associates. And they all started investing in New France in 1627. Um the idea being, we're going to make this bigger. We're going to make so much money on these fur hats. Because they had the money to put into it, Yeah, right? absolutely. Um, these are all very wealthy people. Um, Richelieu, as, as one of the heads of this company, kind of took the reins, started, you know, kind of sending Champlain some instructions on, like, how to run things, but also elevating uh, Champlain to 
governor of New France. So gave him some power Big to go promotion. Um, the Roman Catholic Church became a requirement there. Keep in mind, 1627 means that there are religious wars going on. This is actually the middle of the Thirty Years' War, where uh, we've we've alluded to it. I don't know how many times on HI 101. This is basically where the idea of religious freedom is being fought over in Europe right now, um, and it's not it's not certain in 1627. So uh, Richelieu saw this as a potential like safe haven for Roman Catholics. And that meant that trading with the Wendat meant that those uh, those Jesuit uh, missionaries that we were talking about become a requirement. We will trade with you, but only if you let the missionary into your village to talk to you about Catholicism. And the trading was too good for them to say no. So they accepted the, the, the missionaries. He also established what's known as the seigneurial system, which basically was that he, he decided to set up feudalism in New France. It works in old France. Like feudalism is still a thing in France, so why shouldn't it be a thing in New France? This is yeah. just part of the formalization of the governing process. I think it was always presented to us in school as being like this, wow, look at this really backwards thing that they tried to put in place. And it's like, don't they know that democracy is the <laughs> ultimate way to go? But I, I think in reality, what's happening here is this is seen as a, a civilizing initiative. Oh, absolutely. And, and when you think about it, like, like you kind of need to have a system to make that work in which you have like one person with a lot of money yep. that funds a specific piece of land mm -hmm. and hires people out to farm the land. Yeah. Like it, it's a much less equal uh, way to distribute and progress. Mm -hmm. But yeah, when you've got all those challenges to go up against it, it's sure, you know, you can see the logic in it, even if it's ethically, you know, Kind of relativistic to look at it now and say, like, wow, that sure is unethical to be. This is the reign of Louis the Thirteenth. Cardinal Richelieu is still a living person. Uh, we are well over a hundred years away from the French Revolution. This is this is the order of things. Yeah. This is the seigneurial system. If you went to school in Canada, this is where the long thin farms come in. Ah, oh, the long thin farms. The one thing that only everybody I've mentioned to is like. The long, thin farms. I, I don't know why this. they made such a big thing out of it in school, but basically what was happening there was, I think they're trying to um, emphasize the fact that being on a river is essential to transportation in a place that is not clear-cut, does not have roads. You need, like, for any commercial success, you need to be on a river. And the way that they could maximize the most farms with um, waterfront property is to make them about 10 to 1 in terms of, like, length to width and put like this really thin waterfront on the river so you could pack them all in beside each other. But again, like that's that's all I really want to say about it. I don't really care what shape their farms are. The only takeaway here is the St. Lawrence is essential to the St. Lawrence River is essential to trade. D done with that. When Champlain dies in 1635, He's gone from a completely unsettled place to something that actually resembles a real colony. It's got farmers. It's got, you know, people settled down living there. It's got governance to it. It's got a city. It's got a rule of law. It's got landowners. It, like, you know, it's it's all of these things. And um, it, it, it was really fundamentally very, very different from what it had been before. So at this point, would you say it's completely self-sustaining? No. Goodness, no. Okay. Not, not even remotely close. Um, but 
you know, now with the company taking over, there's going to be some big changes. But I think we should probably take a break here. We've been going for quite some time. And when we come back, we'll talk about what uh, Quebec looks like after the life of Champlain. We're back on HI101 here with Gary Hallman. Woo! I love the enthusiasm. That's great. Um, and when we when we last uh, checked in, Champlain had just died, and New France was looking like an actual real colony. It's a thing now. It's a thing now. With the death of Champlain, though, I mean, it, he really was an institution in Canada. And when when he died, I mean, we kind of get faced with the stark reality that is the very commercial nature of the colony of New France, in that the company is really the one that gets to appoint the next governor. And what they decide to do is, you know, instead of, you know, when Champlain was alive, of course it had to be Champlain. There was no one else who could be governor. They couldn't appoint anyone else without potentially people rioting. Yeah. But once he's gone, now they have the opportunity to basically just appoint a string of incredibly inconsequential pushovers so that they could more or less govern directly through a puppet. And so this period of, of uh, New France's history is mostly going to be maximizing prop- profits through the Courant, um, the church trying to get in every single place they possibly could, because now that they found out that there were people in New France, they couldn't really abide the idea of, them, of any of them not being Catholic. Yeah. Um, and really just an expansion of these trade networks. So you kind of get a bit of a legitimization of some rule, some roles in New France other than the Cour. You get uh, the voyageurs, who are like more, like a less outlaw-y Cour de Bois. The voyageurs aren't there trailblazing. The voyageurs are taking established routes from trading post to trading post carrying furs. So this, this does bring back the memories of my grade seven speech mm-hmm. in which I did a book report on the heroic voyeurs <laughs> <laughs> to my everlasting shame. Yep. I will never wear that one down. Well, and, and you never will as long as you keep telling lots of people on podcasts. Yeah, that's true. Oh, <laughs> even thinking about it now, like, oh, it makes me sick to my stomach. I mean, obviously voyager comes from the French word for voyager. Like it's nothing too complex. Uh, you also have the, uh, the habitant. Who are uh, yes comes from habitants. They're the people who live on farms, and again, they're there to kind of like I, under Champlain. Like, yeah, there was a Quebec city, but like, no one was ever there. They were all off doing other things. So at this point, though, so we've got the church coming in in a big way. What's mm-hmm. kind of the monarchy's take on this? Like, are they interested in this at all, or are not, they content to just leave this to be the church's thing? Not yet, because. We are still in the middle of the Thirty Years' War, and they could not care less about what's going on in New France. Uh, they're busy um, fighting m- multiple empires. So, okay, so, so long as they're content to like remain French, that's basically as much as they're looking into it. But I mean, there isn't even really a French citizenship component to this, right? I mean, they're not. It's not an official French colony yet. The people there are only French citizens insofar as they came from France. Well, and I mean, at that point, and I would argue even at some extent, even in modern days, like there's a real lack of difference between ethnicity and nationality for a lot of European countries, right? 
right compared to north america yeah yeah i i suppose so but i mean this is again this is not actually french territory right now yeah we kind of run into another first nations myth at this point which which is this idea that um it's no one's territory like bull this is this is clearly delineated territory this is very very carefully divided up between a lot of politically complex nations but you get both sides of this one that they don't deserve this land so that's the that's the bloodthirsty side uh, or bloodthirsty trope coming out and the other side is that for some reason the first nations have no concept of land ownership and it's like out of it uh, yeah and that's that comes from that noble savage like too innocent to be kind of kind of trailing for a string of beads kind of thing yeah that's an interesting one actually um because uh apparently yeah, apparently, apparently Long Island going for the beads thing was, number Long one, Island, the uh, the contract was really unclear, and it seemed like they wanted to, like, rent it from them. And the guy was like, sure, if you want to hunt there, go for it. Number two, there was some question as to whether or not the chief that they were negotiating with could actually speak for the entire tribe. So that's another thing that you'll see come up relatively often is it's like, hey, are you an important person? Great. I need you to speak for your entire nation now. When that's not necessarily true. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's not necessarily false either, but it's like asking our education minister to negotiate a complex treaty with an extranational uh, entity. They don't really have that authority, even if they have some, like, some governmental role, right? So at this point, like, do these kind of mini nation states have clear, like, this is the leader? Or is it more like... Council um, run or part of our problem here is that we don't have. I mean, these these First Nations don't have a writing system. It's all oral it's tradition, all oral. and if yeah. you destroy a, a, a nation, you lose an entire nation's history, which is a tragedy. But it means that every time a nation is destroyed, we lose all functional knowledge of that nation, other than what other nations around them knew about them. So a lot of times we just don't know. However, with the with the nations that did survive or that were better documented, we do know that the political system is more complicated than a lot of people give them credit for. In general, you're talking about uh, a number of small, like one or two family units with somebody who speaks for that entire unit. Uh, and then there will be a council on that level with somebody who speaks with that in- entire council, like so like at a tribe level and then leaders of every tribe of a nation will get together to con- uh, to confer on matters so it's relatively democratic mm-hmm. somewhat but again i'm generalizing over like dozens if not hundreds of nations uh who all have different idiosyncrasies to the way that they govern another thing that's all- always really interesting is that it tends to be very like matrilineal like there's a very matriarchal cultural setup to a lot of these nations which just drove the jesuits crazy like they hated it yeah i can definitely see how that that would kind of stir the pot for a lot of people Mm -hmm. really bothered them especially when they couldn't like come up with like a really good reason why it was bad yeah um which is always fun to read about but anyways getting a little off topic here ville marie was founded uh 1642 it's near mount royal montreal um Montreal had been a, a small trading post as far back as 1611, but like the the city that would become Montreal was founded in 1642. So now you have another major uh, urban 
uh, center. Um, you also have in Acadia, uh, you have Port Royal there. Um, but Acadia was a little bit separate from Canada. Like they were considered two different. Um, well, it's still, that's a huge geographical gulf between those two places. Oh, for sure. Canada was basically considered like the St. Lawrence and the territory surrounding the St. Lawrence. Yeah. Which is a pretty big stretch. Um, you also had, you had both France and England kind of claiming Newfoundland to some extent, mostly because of the fisheries, but no one was really founding like cities there. Yeah. You just had uh, British fishermen who would catch the fish, take them to shore, dry them there, and then ship them back. And French fishermen who would basically swoop in, catch the fish. It was called green fishing. They would scoop up the fish and take them just like on board, like still flopping around back to France to process there. Wow. Um, but both of them claimed ownership of those areas. So Newfoundland was contested for a long time. A lot of the history books, uh, like the grade seven history books, will talk about this period, though, as being like, yeah, not a lot happened. That's because everyone was busy with the Thirty Years' War. Like, really, really busy. This is something that consumed the entire continent. It was very, very big. Um, once it was finally done, though, like, they started putting a little bit more hands-on ruler uh, ruling on the, on the colony because they had the time to devote to it again, and they wanted more money. Um, war is always very expensive. This was a way to pay it back through beaver skin hats. We're also going to get into something now that we didn't talk about at all in my history classes. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but have you ever uh, heard of the Beaver Wars? The Beaver Wars? No. Mm -hmm. That's probably because the Europeans had very little to do with all of this, but it is still very important. In the 1620s, there were Dutch settlers in New York, like, you know, the whole yeah. thing, New Amsterdam. Um, is what New York used to be called. They had been allied with uh, the Mohicans, who were being viciously attacked by the Five Nations. They were like they were mortal enemies. The Algonquian-speaking tribes were kind of uh, all all sort of north of the Saint Lawrence and all down the down the eastern seaboard. And the Algonquian-speaking tribes were taking up that middle portion, sort of around the Saint Lawrence and to the south. Okay. The uh, the French while they were while they were trading with all of these allies they did have a couple of rules about like what they would or would not trade with certain people they wouldn't trade with any uh, with any five nations and they were very restrictive on trading guns they yeah they were worried that, that makes sense yeah the Dutch kind of saw the writing on the wall in the war between the five nations and the Mohicans and decided to ditch the Mohicans because they were like, well, you're going to lose this one. Hey, Five Nations, we're with you now. Shoot. <laughs> yeah. That's, 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 what that whole, that's what that whole book is about. Um, so it, will, it was a little rough for them. But the Dutch began arming the Five Nations with guns. And so the French began arming their allies with guns. And by the 1630s, Basically, all the French allies and all the Five Nations were kind of armed to the teeth with 1630s European firepower. Modern weaponry. Yeah. And they were a lot more formidable than they used to be. So in terms of, like, population, like, how large are these groups of people that we're talking about relative to, you know, European settlements at that time? Depends on the size of the nation, but thousands. Okay. There are a lot of people like. Here. Tens of thousands. Oh yeah, or in, in some cases, hundreds of thousands. Ten, like if you're if you're talking if you're talking First Nations, I think I saw numbers in the like seventy thousand range. Okay, so like 
substantial. Dwarfing. Yeah. Yeah, they okay. were huge. The the Wendat would have also been like very large. Mm-hmm. But again, like population numbers are real iffy on some of this stuff, right? Like it's very hard to calculate properly. Um, if you've got anything to go on, it's probably oral tradition. How would they, what are they going to do? Take a census? Yeah. Well, and I mean, oh, you mean like the Europeans taking a census? Of, yeah, like yeah, yeah. It, no, no, no. I absolutely mean, wouldn't. There's, there's really no way to tell. Like no. there's no way that it could probably be accurate. But Yeah. So throughout the 1630s, the newly uh, heavily armed five nations uh, start attacking the Great Lakes region nations because that's where the beavers are. And the Wendat are getting fat and wealthy on all these beaver pelts that they're bringing in uh, to the French. And the five nations want a slice of this really, really badly. Plus the Wendat are kind of their mortal enemies. Well, I mean, they have lots of mortal enemies, but they're even up there in that list of mortal enemies. Seems like everybody not Five Nations is a little mortal bit. enemy. A little bit, but some more than others. But there's a lot of economic pressure that goes in behind this, right? Like it does kind of come off as being like, well, they're just they're just uh, uh, kind of hawkish. Like they're just going to war because they want to go to... No, I mean, they're feeling this economic pressure of like for the first time in a very long time, not being the dominant group in this, econ- or in this uh, geographic region. Um, that's tough. Yeah. That's really tough. Um, there's also population pressure because as we know, Colombian contact brought with it a lot of diseases that first nations people did not have anything even resembling, uh, a, a resistance to. And the way that five nations tribes tended to react to population decimation, either through disease or through warfare was to raid neighboring tribes that were weaker than them basically kidnapping people especially children and raising them as five nations to try and replenish their population hmm yeah yeah that's uh very interesting yeah there were a lot of people being brought up as five nations that maybe weren't like actually five nations ethnically five nations yeah. is, is maybe a better way to put it but i mean raised in all of their traditions raised as part of their families i mean it's it's not like they would have been bullied as teenagers for not being you know really five nations as soon as they were adopted they were five nations as far as they were concerned so it was a very like total adoption but you know it's it's kind of a a little off color yeah, in terms you, of like sensibility imagine, right like, all of these things are, are done out of like not being the dominant group poses serious survival risks. Mm-hmm. So really like it's not, it's not a choice in the way you'd think of it as a, as a choice. It's really a necessity to, you know, it's a, it's a little bit more state of nature-ish, I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, and the other thing too, is that the five nations were a lot more or a lot less mobile than a lot of the Algonquian people. They, um, they were the ones building like these longhouses and they're the ones that were depending a lot more on agriculture for diet. Um, that whole like three sisters thing that we learned about growing up, the, oh, yeah. the, the maize the, and the squash, the squash and, the and the beans. 
um, that that was their jam. That's how they got their sustenance and kind of su- supplemented that with hunting. So they were a little more vulnerable to certain types of economic and biological pressure than the slightly more flexible Algonquian-speaking tribes who, if something was going wrong, they could just move on to a different area where there was less threat of warfare or there was more plentiful um, natural resources and things like that. So they they definitely were more likely to feel threatened by various uh, factors. In 1641, it had gotten so bad that a delegation of Five Nations representatives swallowed their pride and went to uh, Trois-Rivières, a New France city, to negotiate and ask them, listen, can we can we trade furs with you guys? Like, this is, I, I know we've been enemies for 30 years. Um, we're willing to put all that aside. We just want a slice of the pie. And they said no. The French said no. For what reason? Because they were worried that if they agreed to trade with the Five Nations that their allies, who they'd been friends with for nearly 50 years at this point, would abandon them, would would see this as a betrayal. Yeah, and I mean quite quite rightly. And it's kind of a it's kind of a matter of I was gonna say the devil you know, but that's not even fair. Because you are taking a gamble on trading with somebody who up until now has been one of your largest threats in the region over trading with a group of people who have for decades proved themselves good trade partners and good neighbors. I mean, the Coran weren't just setting up trade networks. They were also families, families. They were marrying these first nation peoples and starting families together. Some of them were integrating right into tribes. There were five, uh, there were first nations people with French blood. Like they had built something a lot bigger than the kind of trade deal that you throw away because someone shows up and says, pretty please. Yeah. So it's not like a thoughtless rejection. It's like, it's an important thing to their survival in the area. This shows an understanding of North American politics. And it really shows you the, I guess, difficult, difficult choices, right? Like, even if you would have wanted to say yes, there's probably no way they could have. Yeah. So I mean you're you're really being forced into such uncomfortable situations and you know even if you know it's it's probably going to come back to bite you. Yeah. Which inevitably it does, but well, the five nations were outraged. They were very very upset. I mean they had it's it's not easy it's not easy to go hat in hand for something like that, right? Like what they did was humbling and they were rejected and I, no one takes well to rejection. That's a that's a universal human trait. Um, they responded by dialing up raids on sort of not just these like peripheral tribes, which is usually who they raided, but on the Wendat themselves, which was kind of new. Like this was a this was escalation, um, and it was directly in response to this inability to trade with the French. I mean they they saw that as a last last ditch effort, and it's kind of like well if that's not going to work out for us, we've got to do something, um, and it's going to be drastic. Just a couple years later, in 1645, there were new trade negotiations. Um, the French agreed to most of the demands, but then backpedaled on them and basically said that they weren't willing to buy directly from Five Nations. They were willing to buy furs that the Five Nations had sold to uh, French allies. Okay. Which means that they weren't going to buy those furs 
or if they did, they were going to be significantly cheaper, right? Because there's there's two options here. Either the Wendat or the, you know, Adawa or someone was going to buy uh, Five Nations furs at the normal rate, then turn around and resell them to the French at a higher rate, which, why would the French buy that? Yeah. Or they would need to sell it to the French at the same rate as the furs that they were trapping. So they'd have to give them a discount. So they'd have to buy it from the Five Nations at a se- severely discounted rate, which means that they were like directly crippling the Five Nations' ability to make money off of beaver, fe- beaver pelts. Which is basically the same as saying, no, you can't trade with us, really, at the end of the day. And so again, it's like... They they responded by lashing out. They're not happy with this trade deal. And I can't blame them, but at the same time, I, I can't blame the French for trying to protect their existing alliance. Yeah, they, they have no, going for him. They have no reason to break them. They have a lot of reasons to keep them. In 1647, uh, the Wendat had allied with another nation called the Susquehannock, who... You know, the, the two of them were hoping that, uh, you know, by allying, they would do a better job of, of repelling the Five Nations because they were really strong and they had guns and they were a major threat. Um, they, they tried some sneaky negotiating. They decided that the two most likely nations in the Five Nations to maybe not want to keep being a confederacy were the Onondaga and uh, Cayuga. And so they started negotiating with them directly, hoping to form an alliance to break the league. The other nations found out about this. They were very upset, naturally. um, And the whole thing kind of fell apart. But what kind of What's kind of interesting out of this is is, is two things. Number one, uh, the Five Nations went after the Wendat harder than they ever had. And actually, uh, there was a major defeat for the Wendat. They lost a bunch of territory. Um, they raided really far into Huron territory or Wendat territory uh, and, and attacked a number of settlements. And there was like significant losses. Number two, as far as we can tell, this triggered uh, an internal restructuring of the Five Nations, how they coordinated military policy, economic policy, political policy to try and become more cohesive so that something like this uh, wouldn't be risked again in the future. Yeah, and I think this is where, you know, particularly the Iroquois nations first get their kind of maybe unfair label as being like a very violent tribe. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not Mm -hmm. like they were the only tribe that was using these kinds of military maneuvers, but no. their success in this campaign was just so dominating yeah. that it kind of became a thing of legend. Absolutely. Emboldened by this uh, this victory over the Wendat, number one, they took over important beaver trapping territory, which made them slightly more wealthy. Um, number two, they began attacking the French directly for the first time. So for a lot of French people, all of this, they kind of knew maybe was going on, but it hadn't really hit home. Uh, Montreal was a favorite target of the Five Nations. Um, it was frequently blockaded by uh, by Five Nations uh, warriors and started having a bit of an impact on the beaver trade itself. So they, they really started feeling the effects of this sort of uh, conflict that was going on around them. It's not that they weren't aware of it or weren't engaged in it. It's just it hadn't been directly affecting them up until now. But over this time, it's not just the Wendat that had felt the the effects of the Five Nations expansion. They had taken functional control of much of what had been at one point claimed uh, Virginia. So eating into British territory. eh? Yeah. 
They were expanding southwards, but they were also expanding westwards. As far as they had driven the Shawnee out of Ohio, they had driven uh, the Illinois tribe uh, out of Illinois as far as the Mississippi. They took functional control of all of Michigan, what is today Michigan. They expanded their territory by like seven or eight fold. They got big. They got really big. And all of this is this response to, you know, trying to keep their their numbers up, trying to uh, get beaver trapping territory, trying to retain military dominance in the area. Um, they displaced a lot of different tribes in this expansion. And so there's there's a lot of flack that goes to the French and the English for displacing tribes, and very, very rightly so. But it's not as though there wasn't other stuff going on here, too. Uh the, the borders between these people are incredibly dynamic and incredibly complex. And, you know, when you, when you get a group like the Five Nations who are used to a position of dominance and you give them better tools to dominate, they're going to they're gonna go with that. They're going to make that work. Wow, I had no idea that they made it all the way down south. Like, like even in modern terms, like, that is, that would be a massive... Keep in mind that Virginia was a little bigger than what we think of as Virginia today. Like, it, it extended further north. Well, even even still. But still. Man, that, that's huge. Like, all the way to the Mississippi. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll maybe put a link in the show notes to a, a map of, of like, mid-17th century Iroquois or, or Five Nations territory because it's, it's really amazing how much land they were actually controlling at this point. Uh, some balances had been tipped, for sure. But it's it's not just the territory. It's it's especially, you know, better cohesion, better economic policy. They had learned how to deal with the French and with the English in a way that would benefit them. And it's really interesting because what they found was they could occupy sort of a third party position in the politics between France and England. They realized that if they supported the French, the French would win. And if they supported the English, the English would win. And so they had that trump card where they could go to either one and use that as a bargaining chip. Yeah. Um, equally matched, you know, France and England, they, they spat it all the time in the New World. There were little uh, spats between various colonies all the time. I'm skipping a bunch of them because, honestly, they're kind of boring. A lot of times it's not really of any consequence whatsoever. But the Five Nations were finding a place for themselves in all of that conflict, which is really interesting. And then in 1663, something really interesting happens. Enough economic prosperity had come out of the colony that Louis XIV realized, hey, the company is making a ton of money and paying no taxes. What is this? And he proclaimed New France a royal territory. So this is this is the part where they kind of the monarchy kind of shifts its gaze towards the potential of the new world. Absolutely. And it was still only a few hundred French settlers at this point. Still only that few. It's all you need to run a successful uh, fur trade because they're not the ones doing the trapping. Yeah. The first nations are, they're just facilitating it. They're logistics people. They're not, they're not trappers themselves. I mean, some of them were, but not like that's, that's not what the strength of this trade was. And that's the thing that they don't tell you in school. They're not going out there and trapping beavers themselves. They are setting up massive... They're making long, skinny farms. <laughs> They're setting up massive networks of, of, of fur trading that they have very little to do with. 
other than, you know, facilitating the flow in of payment and the flow out of pelts. And the first thing that uh, Louis XIV sends over before anything else is a detachment of French regulars to help defend Quebec City. And it really puts a damper on all of this Iroquois expansion, especially to the north. Um, so how many people are we talking about here? I believe it's 1,300. Wow. So huge influx of people. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be a, a kind of a, a theme of the, the newly appointed royal territory. But I think we're going to take a break there. I just did want to put a button on this whole Iroquois expansion thing. This isn't the last we've heard from the, uh, from the Five Nations. There's still a lot to go in the Beaver Wars. It's not over by any stretch. But bringing in those French soldiers is going to be uh, a cooling effect for a while and, and a complete game changer for the security of New France. Because up until now, it was whatever voyageur happened to be in the area that could help defend Montreal, that could help defend Quebec. And they almost lost the whole thing a number of times. Um, now they're, they're here to stay, at least for, at least for 100 years or so. So uh, yeah, let's take a break there. And when we come back next, we'll talk about the, the royal territory. The first 70 years of New France's existence were a colossal struggle. The population was small, the country was harsh, and contrary to the old myth of the empty continent, the French settlers found themselves in the middle of a complex and dangerous political struggle. The survival of the colony was uncertain until it finally gained the support of the crown. Next time, however, we'll see that even this isn't going to be enough to do more than give the colony another century or so of life. That episode will be up on May 15th. Since HI101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101. Thank you.